We're continuing our study in 2 Samuel. And everybody is very talkative this morning. No, it's not mostly. There's a lot of conversations going on. Especially my daughter, who's being loud and talkative. The grown adult daughter. The grown adult daughter. So my daughter. I had two adult daughters. Yeah. Technically. So, good morning again. We're continuing our study in 2 Samuel, where we left off last week. Uh, Absalom begins his plot to take over the kingdom from his father, David. And David has heard about it, and he's now in the process of fleeing from Absalom. And David is going to run into some trouble and some persecution and some bad people along the way here. I, I tell this, David is humiliated twice. It's not really my favorite title I've come up with, but I was trying to think of different titles and kind of racked my brain for a while and decided that titles, number one, aren't inspired. And I decided I didn't want to waste hours trying to think of a better title, so I just said, okay, this is fine. So... <laughs> So it is what it is. Um, it, basically, here there's there's a there's a number of people that David encounters and Absalom interacts with who are not good people this week, and we're going to talk about them and why they're not good, and then try to learn some lessons from here, um, mainly from David actually, um, and just how he responds to what's going on in his life, and I, I think some good things that can teach us about how uh, we deal with sometimes when some tough circumstances come in our life, how we, to, how are, we are to respond um, and how we are to look at them and uh, to put our faith in God and how we respond to people. And it, it kind of even fits a little bit with what uh, Scott talked about this morning, so I, I think it will be helpful and maybe work together a little bit with that. So uh, before we begin this, let's go ahead and we'll open in prayer. Um, Matt, will you open us up in prayer? Thank you. So here we go. Let's dig right in here. Second Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Josiah, go ahead and begin reading for us. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddle donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, Donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruits for the young men to eat. Okay, before I give you the word this morning, let's go over this a little bit. I'm going to have you help me out because you guys are smart people. I truly believe that. And uh, Ziba, who's Ziba? Ziba is Saul's servant, or Saul's former servant, because Saul's dead, right? 
So Ziba is serving who? Mephibosheth. I think I spelled that right. Yep. And who's Mephibosheth? I'm not going to spell it again. Saul's son. Grand. Grandson. Yeah, he's, he's uh, Saul's grandson. He's Jonathan's son, right? And what's so special about Mephibosheth? Other than, you know, that's the name that all you young ladies want to name your firstborn, right? Because you want to call him Phoebe. Okay, he's, he's lame. That's good. Why is he lame, Lynn? <laughs> yeah, he, 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 when he was five, they were fleeing. Uh, he fell and got lame in his feet. But what else, what else is special about him? Okay, he's, he's Saul's only living descendant. But what else is special about him? Yes. So David is supporting him right now, right? Well, he was. Now David's fleeing the palace, so he's not really doing that. Okay, so, so that, that's, that's the characters here. And so Ziba shows up without Phoebe. And uh, Ziba, and I'm going to give you the word last. You want to try to guess the word, Gabriel? Yeah, you, you, you're, my words are so predictable to you. <laughs> I'm just teasing you a little. Do you have a conflict? No. <laughs> I'm just teasing Gabriel. A couple weeks ago, I had some very predictable words, and he, was, he had them all filled out, and I was like, oh, they're so predictable. So. No, that's, you, I think you did, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm teasing. It's a love thing. I tease people I love, right? I tease my children all the time. April Fool's Day. Okay, so Ziba meets David in the mountains. I'm going to come back to the word, so just hold off. I know you guys are offended by this. But um, Dave, Ziba meets David in the mountains, and I, if you want to know more about Ziba, we talked about this in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's why I got it in there. Ziba brings donkeys. Awesome. Ziba brings food. Even more awesome. Why the donkeys? Well, the donkeys, I think, are there to carry the food because there's a lot of food there. So David asks, why are you doing this? Ziba explains, well, this, the donkeys are here for you to use, and the food is here for you to eat, especially the people that are faint and they need food. This is good for you. David asks, well, where's Mephibosheth? Want to know more about Mephibosheth? Go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Ziba answered, oh, he's in Jerusalem. Why is he in Jerusalem? Well, he's going to get the throne back. He's there because now that you're gone, he's going to... He says that God's going to restore the throne to him, and he's going to take back over. Is this what he's doing? No, let's go look. <laughs> I'll give you a little preview. Turn a few chapters ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 
Normally, I don't, I don't uh, go ahead because I figure we're going to cover this in a few weeks, but this is important that we see what's going on here. So we need to go ahead here because this is important to the story and it's important to the word I'm going to give you. Uh, so 20, verses 24 through 30 here. Who wants to read for us? Abigail, go ahead. And this is, that, by the way, to set the scene, this is David coming back after... Absalom is defeated and killed, and he's coming back to Jerusalem to reclaim his throne. So, yeah. Yeah, spoiler. I, I, you all knew this, right? I'm not surprised anybody. Okay, good. So here's the real story. Ziba said to Mephibosheth, let me get a donkey, I'll saddle it, and we'll go to the king together, is basically what Ziba's story was. And then Ziba took off with the donkey and the food, went to the king and uh, left Mephibosheth behind and came up with a story. Oh, Mephibosheth's trying to take over the throne. I came to you to bring this news to you. So Ziba, thank you, deceives David. And when you look at this story in chapter 15, it looks like Mephibosheth, or chapter 16, it looks like uh, Ziba's doing something really good here for David. Oh, I'm, I'm coming to you, I'm on your side. And until you get the whole story, you don't know what really is going on here. And as you read on, David believes this. In fact, you know, he, he says, okay, this is the Mephibosheth has betrayed me here. You know what? I'm going to give you all the land that belonged to Saul, you get it now. I'm taking it away from Mephibosheth, it's yours. And Ziba gives this whole thing about, oh, I humbly bow before you, that I may find favor in your sight, O Lord, my king. You know, that seems like a very legitimate thing, but really what's going on is Ziba is deceiving the king and taking advantage of the situation, knowing that Mephibosheth, without Ziba's help, cannot come to the king and prove his loyalty to David. And so Ziba is turning out to be a very faithless servant to Mephibosheth. And until you read ahead and find out what was really going on in the story, you don't understand that. So it's good to read ahead a little bit. And I don't do that often in these lessons because, you know, we'll get there. But we need to see that to see what Ziba's doing here. So Ziba deceives David. So number one person that tries to look good but is bad is Ziba. Number two person, number two person doesn't try to look good. So we'll, let's look at verse number two, verses five through eight. Gabriel, you want to read this one?
So Shimei curses David. And he, he's blatant. He just comes out and just, he's just brutal towards David here. Um, so David comes to this uh, Behurim, and he meets this man from the house of Saul. His name is Shimei. He's a son of Gerir. He's a, a distant descendant of Saul. He's obviously not in line of the kingship because the only person that's in line from Saul that's left is Mephibosheth. Um, but he was cursing David. He's throwing stones. He's being belligerent. He's just not being a nice guy at all. Um, and you see here that uh, David's mighty men were on his right and on his left. This is basically the idea David's bodyguard are surrounding him. They're trying to make sure David's not going to get hurt by this guy throwing his, the stones at him, right? So they're kind of trying to protect him, which is probably why he's saying, come out. He's like, get out from your bodyguards. I want, I'm going to take you on. Now, this guy by himself is pretty daring because David's coming out with at least 600 men, at least 600 of his men that fought with him back when he was, before he was king, when he was in the land of the Philistines. These are his mighty men. These are his warriors. So this guy's being pretty bold here. Um, and he calls them a number of names. He calls them bloodthirsty. Um, and he calls them bloodthirsty. He calls them a rogue. And then he says, he, God brought this upon David because of what he did to Saul because of, um, because uh, he says here, the blood of the house of Saul. So why is he saying the blood of the house of Saul? What, what is he referring to here? Well, who died in the house of Saul that he's blaming on David? Saul. Saul, yeah, Saul. Yep, this is a good point. So let's, let's see, Saul. So he's blaming, he may be blaming David for Saul's death. Now, did David kill Saul? No. No, so that's... Yeah, or, or misplaced blame. Who, who else might he be blaming from the house of Saul? What's that? There's all the people in the house who died, and then Mephibosheth was in the Right. So, so it could have been all this household. But also another one is uh, maybe Ishbosheth. You remember who, him? Who was he? Yeah, he was the son that remained after Saul's death, who took over the kingship for those seven years, right? And was kind of the rival to David. And ended up dying. Another one he might be blaming is Dathan. Let me see if I can spell it. Abner, remember, Abner is Saul's uncle. He came over to David and ended up dying. Now, did David kill Abner? No. No. It was Joab. But maybe he's thinking of any of these three, or, or again, maybe as Abby was saying, anybody in the house of Saul. So maybe he's blaming David for any of these deaths. And again, David didn't cause any of this. In fact, David all along acted righteously towards the house of Saul. David had plenty of chances to kill Saul. We know of two for certain where he had a very good opportunity to kill Saul without Saul knowing he was even there. And he restrained his hand. Um, Ishbosheth, he. Um, he, they fought for seven years, and David had nothing to do with that. It was actually Ishbosheth's servants that killed him, and Abner was killed by Joab. So um, this guy's blaming David, but David probably has no guilt in any of this. If these are what he's thinking of, 
What's that? Miguel Strom was banned though. The what? Miguel Strom was banned from the guild from within. The guild from within? Okay. I, I'm not sure what you're saying, but okay, we'll go with that. Oh yeah, yeah. His his it was his servants, his captains, and his yeah. That they, they did, yep. So then he uh, he blames David that he's caught in his own evil that um, that your your own evil has caused you to lose your kingdom here. Well, that's actually kind of a true statement at this point, right? But not because of what what Shimei is saying. Not because of what he did to Saul. This is because of his own evil with his sin with Bathsheba. And so that statement might be getting to David here, and we'll see in a second. Um, and David probably realizes. And then Shimei, in his eloquent words here, follows it up again with saying, David, you're bloodthirsty. Again, because apparently that's what he comes up with, is bloodthirsty. So Shimei is, is very creative in his taunts here. You're, you're bloodthirsty. Um, he left off. Oh, Oh, no, dog comes up for another, the, the other taunt from another person gets to use dog. So that's, that's copyrighted by somebody else here. So don't worry, we're, we're going to get the dog again. In fact, it's a dead dog then. So um, it's not just a dog, it's a dead dog. It's even more worthless than a dog. Um, uh, verses 9 through 12. Nathan. And Abishai, the son of Uriah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog. <laughs> Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeriah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life? How much more now may this Benjam- Benjamite let him alone? And let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. So David goes ahead, and he's going to ignore Shimei. And so Abishai, who's Abishai? Yes. And who is he related to? Yeah, he's Joab's brother. He's David's nephew, one of the generals. Yes? Oh. <laughs> you guys are reading for free and you don't like that. Abigail didn't beg for candy. <laughs> Um, so, okay, where were we? Uh, so Abishai, he's, uh, he's David's nephew. He's Joab's brother. Um, and he, he's all excited by this. How dare you curse David? Why are you letting this dead dog say this? Again, dogs weren't the cute household pets. They were a nuisance. And so dogs are an insult. A dead dog's an even worse insult. Um, so he offers to... Kill him. Let me go kill him. You know, this is almost like it's not even worth your trouble to kill him. Let me go take care of him for you. Um, 
you know, let me do you the favor and, and, and take this problem off your hands. This is one form of conflict resolution. <laughs> uh, David, of course, doesn't go for this solution here. Um, and look at how what his response is. Uh, let him curse. And he says, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. David offers up that this comes from God. And that's interesting. That he's, he's saying that the Lord has said to him, curse David. That this is part of David's seeing as this as part of what God is saying because of what I've done, part of what God is putting as my judgment for what I've done, that this is supposed to happen. This is what God is allowing to happen. And so I'm going to endure this because this comes from God. And God actually ordered him to do it. God, God, in his sovereign will, has ordered this to happen. And so David's like, we're going, I'm going to endure this. So when we get into situations that we don't like, we're uncomfortable with, that are painful to us, do we go, well, God has, in his sovereign will, ordained this to happen, and I'm going to endure this. And I'm going to do what's right in the situation. Because David knows that it's not right to go kill the guy just because he has a bad opinion of me. Um, you know, David, at times, Saul was doing what's wrong. Saul tried to kill David several times, and David refrained from killing Saul because it wasn't his place to raise his hand against the Lord's anointing. This guy's just throwing rocks and yelling at him a little bit and calling him bloodthirsty. And David says, it's not my place to take this guy's life. That's not the right thing to do. God in his sovereignty has put him here to curse me. So I'm going to respond correctly in this. I'm going to do what's right. This comes from the Lord. Oh, by the way, let me tell you a story here. My own son's trying to kill me. So if this Benjaminite who... Yeah, okay. I'm talking from David's point of view here. My son's not trying to kill me as far as I know. Are you trying to kill me? I was, I was talking about Jeremiah, by the way, too. So, um, so David's saying, but my son, guys, my son's trying to kill me. Okay, does that help better? David's saying, my son is trying to kill me. This Benjaminite is just cursing me. And and he he's comes from Saul's family, and he hates me because of what happened to Saul. It, it makes more sense than my son trying to kill me. I mean, just do you understand where he's coming from here? He obviously has some pent up hatred and frustration here. This is going to happen. It's, you know, look at his point of view. I, I think you know, you're talking about you know the the two parties not understanding each other's point of view. David's understanding his point of view. This guy obviously has reason to do this. He may be wrong in doing it, but I know where he's coming from. He, he thinks that I, I did wrong in taking over Saul's throne, and he's of Saul's family. He has reason to do it. My son, after all, is trying to kill me. I mean, there's people that hate me, and he hates me. 
You know, he's not, at least not trying to kill me. So um, how much more would this Benjamite who hates me throw rocks at me? That's, that's going to happen. So just let him be. And you know what? If, if, if he's in the wrong here, he's accountable before God. God's fully capable of dealing with this situation. I can trust God in this situation. I endure. I'll do what I can do. I will do what's right. I will control how I react to the situation. I will control my response and obey the Lord. And God can take care of the situation. He's big enough to do that. And that's what we have to sometimes get over, is that we don't have to be in control of the situation. We don't have to fix the problem. God can fix the problem. We just have to respond correctly to the situation. We have to do what's right as far as our part is to do. The Bible tells us that we need to live peaceably with all men, and we need to do our part to do that, and there's only certain things that we can't do. I cannot control your response. I cannot control how you respond to the situation. David can't make this guy like him. David can't make this guy understand that God appointed him to be king, and God chose him to be king, and gave him a covenant that you know he was going to do all these things. This guy's never going to understand that. David knows that, so he can't go up there and sit down and say, hey, we're going to have a talk, and you're going to understand this. No, he's not going to understand that. So David's like, I'm just going to control my response. My response, I'm going to ignore this and put it in God's hands. If God wants to deal with this guy because he's acting wrongly, God can deal with that. But I'm not going to go slaughter the guy because he has the wrong opinion, because he's doing the wrong thing. That's not my place. Go ahead, Scott. You're 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 ruining my later points. You're <laughs> working ahead here. Ah! Okay, everybody, go to the le- go, we're going to the end of the, the lesson here. So. <laughs> no, no, you're 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 going exactly where I was going to go later. So I'm 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 working towards that. Too. Yep. That's a very that's a very astute thought. Yes. I stole it from somebody else though too. So. I stole it, I stole it from somebody else. So. But yes, that's that's exactly right. Um, I was going to make that comparison later. I can bring it up now too. But um, yeah, remember earlier Nabal the fool. Um, he uh, David went to him because he needed food and sustenance and protection. And he actually served Nabal by protecting his sheep, uh, shepherds, his sheep people. I was going to say sheep people, shepherds. Um, and Nabal's like, who's this David? What do I have to do with him? I'm not going to provide for him. Let, him. let him be off on his own. And David was, David was mad. David was furious and was like, I, if I leave one of his males alive, oh, he's going to be lucky. And Abigail comes out and says, oh, wait, this guy's a fool. But don't do this. This is wrong. You know, trust God in this. And she, she basically talks him down, right? That, that was his response then. Now look at his response now. His response now is like, hey, trust God in this. We don't have to do this. We don't have to slaughter the guy. You know, it's, it's night and day response. I think he's matured a lot from that point with Nabal and has learned to trust God in this situation. It's like, okay, yeah, this guy's offensive. This guy's belligerent. This guy is disgrading on me. But, hey, God's in control of the situation. And you see the growth in David. I, I think there's another element here. I'm going to save that part for later. That, but. 
<laughs> no, you can say it. It's, it's good. Um, so, so good. Let's, let's, uh, am I done with this here? Yeah, okay. So, anyway, so that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very good observation. It's, it's something I thought of, too. So, uh, 2 Samuel 16, 13 and 14. Let's move on. Oh, I, was, okay, I didn't see you. His hand went up first. Let's go with Jana. We'll start in the back. So Shimei continues to taunt David. I didn't put this in here, but again, David's traveling with uh, 600 of his warriors plus all the rest of his entourage. And this is this one guy. And obviously David has warriors that he could, you know, detain this guy at least, if not kill him. And this guy just continues to be belligerent and keeps on throwing stones and he's kicking up dust and stuff. I, I would think that this guy would at some point be like, I've kind of pushed it too far here, but what is David going to react to this? So he's, he's really bold. I give him credit for that, you know. Uh, but David continues on, and uh, Shammai continues to follow, cursing, throwing stones, kicking up dust. And then verse 14 is an interesting verse. Um, now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. Um, one commentary talks about that uh, this became weary might actually be the name of a place instead of became weary. So they, came they came to a place that the Hebrew word might be the name of the place they came to. They said that might make more sense, so you might read it that way. Um, and so they refreshed themselves there, which then if it, they came to, and then whatever the Hebrew word is there, uh, and so they, I, and I read that this morning just before I came here as I was looking over a couple last things. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting thought. Um, <laughs> they came to blank and so refresh themselves there. That kind of makes sense in the flow of, I, as you read it. So they, met, they were probably weary, and, and probably weary of this guy cursing them and throwing stones at them too, I imagine, either way. Uh, but then they refresh themselves. So they, they keep moving on. They ignore this guy. He keeps taunting them. He keeps following them throwing stones and stuff, and uh, just being a real nuisance. So David has to deal with this guy, and he shows great patience and great uh, control over himself that he just lets this guy continue to, to do this. It's not just one incident and this guy's gone. This guy follows him around for a while um, and just is a real nuisance. So, yes? Yeah. So I'm wondering if he's trying to show himself as a good guy, not David. But the Absalom. Where in the other guy, the first guy he talks about, pretty much believed that maybe David's coming back to the kingdom. Yeah. Where this guy's pretty convinced David isn't coming back, and so he's either posturing himself, maybe dropping this theory. I, I, think, I think it's either that or there's just so much um, you know, it, it, yeah, it, that's that's an interesting thought, and it's it's hard to tell because 
Um, his, his story doesn't last very long either. So um, anyway, so let's move on. 15 through 17, who wants to read next? Miriam. So Hushai offers his services to Absalom. And remember, this is all part of the plot. Hushai wanted to go with David. David said, you can't go. We think maybe that's because he was very old and wasn't able to keep up with the group. And so David says, you go and go to Absalom and be my spy, be my counter-advisor and, and, and frustrate the council of Ahithophel. And, you know, be kind of a nuisance without knowing that you're being a nuisance. And so he goes um, to Absalom. Absalom, first of all, enters Jerusalem because, remember, David fled. Absalom was still um, in, uh, where was he at? The, what's that? Hebron. Hebron, thank you. Couldn't remember the name of the time. I didn't want to start with an H. I couldn't remember. But he was there. So he comes into Jerusalem because he's taking over the throne. He's coming into David's palace and officially taking control of the kingdom. Um, Ahithophel is with him, and Hushai comes, and Hushai says, long live the king, long live the king. (laughs) He's going to throw his support at Absalom, or at least look like he is. And Absalom, of course, first says, okay, this is weird. This guy was my father's advisor. He's been with my dad for a long time. Something doesn't seem right here. So he, he, he first of all asks, okay, is this this how you show loyalty to my dad? What's going on here? Why aren't you with Daddy, why aren't you out there with him? I, I don't get this. You were his advisor. Why should I trust you? Hmm? Well, Hushai, he, he's, he's been with the king a long time. He's a smart guy. He's obviously a good advisor, and he can come up with a good story. Let's hear his story, verses 18 and 19. Lemuel, okay, I'll let you read. So Hushai gives an answer to Absalom's concern. He has, he has a great answer. Now here's the thing I'm really confused by in the Hebrew. So this morning we read in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah said, it said something about like uh, Nehemiah went to the, or, or no, the outcry came from the people and from the wives. And so I turned to Abigail and said, see, women aren't people. The wives aren't people. Now here it says that he went all the the men that Israel all the people and all the men. So the men aren't people. So who are the people? The wives aren't the people, and the men aren't the people. Who are the people? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. So the children are the people. I don't know. The wives aren't the people. Uh, So anyway, I don't know if that, that wasn't probably a good joke. Anyway, oh, we'll move on. Uh, Hushai, 
So Hushai's answer, he's going to support the popular choice. First of all, he brings up, uh, no, but whom the Lord chooses. So he's going to come to Absalom and kind of give him all, God chose you. The Lord chose you. And, and so I'm going to get behind the Lord's choice. So he's kind of playing a little bit on Absalom's pride here, maybe a little bit, and saying that, hey, God chose you. It's obvious here. You're, you're God's chosen king, so I'm going to be on God's side here, and you're obviously on God's side. We're going to work together. Um, playing a little bit on Absalom's pride. And Absalom goes for this. You know, he, he's going to say, okay, that sounds right. And then it's like, and, and the people and the men of Israel, they chose you. I want to be on that side too. They've rejected David. They chose you. I'm going to be for that. Um, and so I'm going to be on that side. So who the Lord chooses, who the people choose, I want to be on that side. I want to be on the winning side. And Absalom, he understands that, so he's fine with that. And he says, furthermore, who should I serve? If I'm not serving David, I mean, he's obviously been rejected. I'm going to serve his son. I mean, that's the next best thing, right? I, I mean, yes, I was loyal to David, but if David can't reign, the next best guy is his son, you know, serving the family still. And there's that family loyalty thing, so he plays on that, so that's, that's good to Absalom. And so as I've served in your father's presence, I'm going to serve you too. I'm just going to keep serving the family. And that all works with Absalom. Absalom brings him in and says, okay, that, that satisfies me. That's good. I like that explanation. You're in. So, so Hushai gets in, um, and then Absalom turns to his other advisor and he says, I need some advice. So, Joanna, you're going to give us the last section here? Okay. So Hiphophel gives counsel to Absalom. And so Absalom goes to Hiphophel, his main counselor, and says, what, what should I do now? I'm the king. What, what's, what's my next move? David's fleeing. What do I do? I've not been king before. What's my, what's my next job? So Hippophel says, oh, here's, here's what you do. David left his concubines here. How many? Ten. Ten, thank you. That's a good memory. Go and have sexual relations with them. Now, why is that? Just because they're there? Well, no, the concubines belong to the king. They're part of the royal harem. They're part of the, the group that belongs to the kingship. They are part of what means to be royalty. And by doing that, he's promoting himself and saying, look, I'm now the king. They're mine. They're part of the royalty. They make me the king. And so he's telling him, you go do that, and that solidifies your spot as the king. And so it's not just, it's not just you know, they're there, go enjoy that. It, it, this is a political move on his part. This is to solidify his position as king. Um, but also... So as a secondary motive, Israel's going to know that you are abhorred by your father. This is also a poke a little bit at your dad. He left these ten concubines here. Again, 
I, I'm not sure what David's motivation was in that. Other than, you know, God said this was going to happen. This was part of what God said was David's judgment, so it was going to happen. And this is happening now. And then he says, you will strengthen those with you. Again, this is, again, a political move that people are going to see that you've strengthened yourself, solidified your position as king, and people are going to support you now. It's going to strengthen your position. It's going to get people under you to say, okay, he's showing that he's the king, and I'm going to line up under him and follow him and acknowledge him as the king. So Aslan does what Hiphophel says. He pitch a tent on the top of the house to make it public. And again, this is exactly what God says. So if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, this is what uh, the prophet Nathan says. He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up an adversary against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do the same before all Israel, before the sun. And it's being fulfilled right there. And then interestingly enough, and... Um, Verse 23, it says, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as, as if one inquired at the oracle of God. And now what it's not saying is that Ahithophel is giving godly advice. That's not what this verse is saying. What it's saying is that Absalom is following this advice as if he's like reading the Bible, like what, what we would read the Bible, where we read it and go, oh, that's the truth, I should do that. He's following Ahithophel's advice like Ahithophel is telling something, he's going, oh, yes, I'm going to do that. Oh, what are you telling me? Oh, yes, I'm going to do that. That's what it's saying here. So he, he's taking Ahithophel's advice as if you know, God were talking to him. Not that Ahithophel is giving godly advice. He's obviously not. But he's following that kind of advice that he's looking to him to be the guy who's guiding him and directing him in his life. And that's the problem. Are you raising your hand? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you were stretching or... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was, and again, Ahithophel, and you probably missed this last week, he's uh, Bathsheba's uh, grandfather. So there, there is some, there wasn't unexpected necessarily, but yeah, it, it was hard because he was working for David. He was David's advisor, and we see this at the end here. So it was the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. He was advising David before this, and he switched sides. He jumped loyalty. And part of it was not unexpected because of what happened with Bathsheba and what happened there. I think he probably was very offended by what happened, too. And when Absalom says, you know, I'm going to get back at David here, he probably was like, yeah, he deserves it. And I'm, I'm with you on this. And so, um, yeah, so, uh, but Absalom's taking his advice from him. And again, he, I think there's some bitterness in his heart. So he's like, okay do this, let's get back at David. Let's get back at David together. This is what you do. Not only will this solidify your position as the king of the kingdom, but you're going you're gonna to get at your, your dad. You know, people will know that uh, you're abhorred in his eyes. So it's going gonna, it's gonna, to break that. Any trust that you had left is going to be gone after this. Uh, so. so that's the end of the chapter there. Nice, happy ending to the chapter, I guess. Not really. Um, so my takeaways here. So I, my big takeaway is David is trusting God in the face of persecution. And we can see how this and how David responded in three different people in the face of Shammai's persecution. First of all, looking at God. David not only accepted what God was doing in his life, but trusted that God was in control of the situation 
and would work it out as he willed. Uh, David, of course, had divine revelation about the troubles he was going through. You know, God told him, this is part of your judgment, that your adversary was going to be risen up against you in your house. The sword was going to be in your house, and you were going to have to suffer this. So David knew this was going to happen. But you know what? We have divine revelation that trouble is going to come in our life, don't we? And I'll give you one instance there, James 1. My brethren, count it all joy when, not if, when we fall into various trials, when you fall into various tribulations in your life. This is written to Christians. So not if it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Why? Well, there's a reason for it. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfected, complete, lacking nothing. Now, I was, I was thinking about this this morning, working through my mind. Um, how many of you are parents? A few of you. Um, and you have situations in your life, and you've raised kids. And let's, let's think of a couple situations. Uh, one, I was thinking, like, you're cooking in your kitchen, and you have small kids and you're cooking something on the stove, and you have a child that's playing in the kitchen while you're cooking, so you're, you're cooking on the stove, and maybe you have to go to the counter, you have to go to the sink, so you turn your back on the stove, and you're doing, preparing something, and you turn around, and you see your child walking towards the stove, their hand up, reaching up towards the stove, because they're curious. They want to do that. And what do you do? Did you say, oh, don't, t- don't touch that? That's not what I would do. I would, I would grab the child and pull him back, slap the hand and say, don't do that. Or something. I'd, I'd do something that, that was, you know, that's going to hurt. They're not going to like that, right? Why am I doing that? Because I want to inflict pain on them because I'm a mean guy? Because yes. I want to hurt them? <laughs> okay, to you I would. Because <laughs> you're trying to kill me. Okay. Uh, no, the reason is because there's a greater purpose in that, right? I'm trying to keep my child from getting their hand burnt, right? There's something worse, yeah. And, and that's what God's trying to do in our lives sometimes, is that when we go through hard times, God's trying to do something good in our life. And we often see our hard times as, God, get me out of this hard time because this hurts, this is awful, I can't deal with this. God, I, I don't know why this is happening. You must be being very mean to me because I have this hard time in my life. And we don't look at it as, God, are you trying to produce patience in me? Are you trying to mature me? Are you trying to grow something in me? Maybe the hard time is there because God wants to teach us something. Or maybe the hard time is because like David's hard time because, hey, <laughs> we're not acting the right way and God's trying to get us on the right path. I think David... In this situation, part of the reason why he can endure Shimei's taunting is because he understands that God's trying to get him back on the right path. That David says, okay, I've done something wrong. God's trying to teach me that this wrong is a bad thing and I need to be on the right path. I need to be serving God the right way. And I just need to trust him in this. And he's teaching me how to trust him again. Maybe David doesn't understand all that perfectly, but he's learning that. And he's learning to trust God. He's learning to put his faith in God again. And too often we look at the hard times and we say, 
And when we pray this, we pray, God, this, this time is too hard. God, take away the hard time. Instead of praying, God, teach me through the hard time. Grow me through the hard time. Help me to understand what I need to learn. James here says, brethren, first thing, count it all joy. <laughs> God, I'm going through a hard time. How am I supposed to count it joy? This hurts. This is hard. This is difficult. I don't enjoy this. How am I supposed to count all joy? Well, we look to what it's going to produce. We look to what the end result is. That's how we count all joy. So David, I, th- I think, not only accepts what he's doing, but he trusts that God's in control of that situation. And he can count it joy even though he doesn't like the rocks being thrown at him, even though he doesn't like being called bloodthirsty and being called a rogue and having to deal with this guy. He can look at it and count all joy because he sees that God is in control of that situation. So he's trusting God there. Now with Shimei, uh, David accepted the taunts from Shimei and even seems to understand the motivation behind them. Again, looking at that other point of view, uh, David does not show anger or hatred towards Shimei, which is in stark contrast to his reaction when Nabal insulted and humiliated him and Abigail had to talk him down. We talked about that. See, it was in my notes. It was there. Um, this seems to show a maturity and I think even a penitence in David's situations that he understood because of what he was going through, because... This was part of what God had judged for him, that he just needs to take this in stride and, and do what's right. That, okay, this is from the Lord. God ordained this. God put this in place. God has this guy cursing me. This would be really stupid of me now to start sinning again to deal with this guy when I'm being judged, and that's why I'm dealing with this situation. My sin got me here, so should I sin more so I get more judgment, or should I respond rightly? Yeah. <laughs> So, so David, David had those, okay, I need to start responding rightly here because this is what got me in this situation in the first place. And then Abishai, well, Abishai offers vengeance to David. David offers mercy. Uh, I think, you know, David has, and we talked a couple weeks ago, you know, when, when David was confronted by Nathan that, um, you know, Nathan tells the story and David says that the man must die and Nathan says, you are that man. I think David realizes, you know, what I did twice over committing adultery with another man's wife, that's the, the punishment for that in the Old Testament is death. And then killing a man, the punishment for that is death. So twice over, he has the death set this on him. And God says, you're not going to die for this. Well, there's God's mercy right there already. And so David's experienced that mercy, and now David's like, okay, I could go kill this guy, but I'm going to show him mercy. God's shown me mercy Again, what you talked about, you know, we've, he's experienced God's mercy. He has the ability now to show mercy to someone else. Um, so David offers mercy. David, again, shows his trusting in God by allowing God, allowing God to right the situation instead of taking matters into his own hands. He's going to trust God in the situation. He can show mercy to him and let God deal with this person instead of him dealing with it. So David trusting God in the face of persecution, in the face of hard times. And that's an example for us. Can we trust God in the face of hard times? Can we show mercy to others? Can we trust God uh, to work out the results of the situation? Can we look to God and say, God, this is a hard time, but you're growing something in me. You're working out things in my life. You're helping me mature and become like you. Help me to do that with joy. I think those are the attitudes we should have. Um, Then my second takeaway, I have this as an important note. Um, And... 
uh, this is something I was thinking about. Well, Absalom did what was prescribed by God as part of David's judgment. I'm thinking mainly with the, the sleeping with his concubines on the roof um, for his sin. It does not excuse Absalom's actions. What Absalom did was wrong, and he's still responsible for his actions. God may have allowed this to happen and may have used it to bring David back into a right relationship with him, but in no way did God condone the actions of Absalom. And then I thought of Pharaoh and Exodus. I don't know why I'm thinking, oh, I know why, because I'm reading through Exodus in my Bible reading. Um, Pharaoh and the Exodus. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he could display his power. Um, you know, it, over and over it says, um, God says, tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he won't let you go. And, you know, in my younger days when I, I couldn't understand some of this stuff, I would think like, well, God, if you're hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's not really Pharaoh's fault that he's not letting Moses go. And then, can he really be punished for that? But Pharaoh still acted in sin towards God. It was him who made that decision. And even though God was using Pharaoh to display his power, Pharaoh was still responsible for his own decisions. We looked at it a few weeks back, but I don't remember what it was. Absalom, father of peace. Father of peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really fit him very well, does it? And then Solomon's name is, is, means peace, too. Yeah. It's like, you know. Maybe David just wanted peace in his family and wasn't getting a lot of it. No. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, with, with this, it's interesting. But the, the, these, these men are responsible for their own actions. And it reminds me a, a little bit of uh, Romans 5 and 6, because Romans 5 talks about our sin, and um, it talks about that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And that kind of the idea of Paul's argument is that when we sin, God is allowed to display his grace to us. And so you may say, well, I have a lot of sin. Well, that's great because God can display his grace to you and he can show how great his grace is. And so you get to the end of chapter 5 and Paul's, Paul kind of brings up the, the idea that, well, maybe it makes it sound like that, well, maybe we should sin a lot more because if the more we sin, then the more God can show grace. So if it's, the more sin there is, then God can give us greater grace. Wouldn't that be great that God could just show off his grace so we should keep sinning? So then he gets to chapter 6 and he makes that argument. He says, well, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the idea is certainly not. Absolutely not. How could you who are dead to sin continue there in it? You've died to sin. Christ died on the cross. And in dying to that, we've been baptized with him in his death. We've died to that sin. And now as he's been raised from the dead, we've been raised to new life so that we should live for him. And we're responsible for our actions. So that, that kind of that same idea that um, we're, we're responsible for what we do. And, um, you know, just because our sin would make God look better doesn't mean that, oh, we should just go ahead and sin. We need to be responsible for our actions. And um, just because what Absalom did uh, works to help God judge David doesn't mean that Absalom did the right thing just to help God out. Absalom is responsible for his own actions. So, um, I know that most of you probably understand that, but just in case somebody doesn't and thinks, well, Absalom was just doing what God wanted him to do. So isn't that okay? No, it's not okay. Absalom acted in sin. He did what was wrong. So, and maybe that's more for the younger classes, just so they understand, because it took me years to understand that even though God said that he would do this and even though this is part of his judgment, Absalom is responsible for his own actions and responsible for his own sin, and we need to recognize that.
and understand that he will be judged for what he did. And even uh, Abishai, even though he suggested, you know, hey, you go and do this, it wasn't because he suggested because Nathan the prophet said that he was going to do this. He came up on this on his own probably. And it just happened to work out. It just happened to work out. God in his sovereignty knew it was going to work out. But um, to him it was just uh, he came up with that own idea and it worked the way God wanted it to. But he's responsible for that action. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts or questions or comments? I've talked a long time. This was, I looked at this and it was like, what is this? Uh, it's like 19 or 20 verses or something like that. 23 verses. I thought this was going to be a nice short one, but I still yeah. talked an hour. So. so was Abishai's response necessarily wrong? To kill the guy? Yes. I... My my thought is yes, because did the guy do anything deserving of death? He, um, I, and I would have to look and see if there's anything in the Old Testament about, you know, if you throw stones with the intent to hurt somebody, if that's punishable by death in the law. I, I don't think he actually, in this case, did anything that he would punish by death, so I think that there's no death sentence, so I, I don't think that he had the right to go kill him, chop off his head. So I would say that by, by him offering, if he would have gone and killed him, I'd say yes. He would have done something wrong. It would have been murder. So then how would he be showing mercy? If the proposed alternative is wrong, it's not right. Uh, I, I think maybe an attitude. Um, just, just a kindness of attitude, saying, you know, leave him alone. I understand what he's going through. I understand why he's saying it, and not really, really holding anger or grudge towards it. Maybe, um, yeah, because you're right. He didn't, he didn't really in the action. He went, didn't really show him anything merciful, but he just, he didn't respond in kind. He didn't uh, retaliate at all. Um, he didn't show any sign of anger or frustration with him. Does that make sense? Yep. Is that an acceptable answer to you? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I, okay, so maybe, yeah, maybe mercy is a little strong, but he uh, responded appropriately. Yeah. Don't you think culturally, though, I mean, if someone was mocking the king, it was not unusual for the person to get away? Yeah, he probably would have culturally, and, I, you know, Probably, you, you got arrested for sure, probably. Yeah, detained. Yeah. I, I would think, too, that if you're throwing rocks at the king, they would at least have the soldier sit on you while the king got by, and then <laughs> the maybe, it, maybe they would have released you afterwards when the king was a couple miles down the road and said, okay, now don't do that anymore. You know, to, to let him continue to follow you and continue to throw rocks is probably, yeah. So uh, a little bit unusual. Yeah, probably, the, uh, again, the killing, the murder would, would have probably still been wrong no matter what, uh, either way. But Because um, I, I don't think there's anything in the Old Testament that says that you murder somebody just for calling you uh, bloodthirsty or throwing rocks at you. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think Shimei is David's son, though. Because he's of the house of Saul. <laughs> Oh. 
Well, I only have Nathan's word that he's trying to kill me, and he, he could be lying to me. And I don't know. Is there something about lying to your dad? We're going to have to sort this all out afterwards, aren't we? Let's close it there. This, this is getting way out of hand. Um, Jonathan, will you close us in prayer? Amen.